May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Twenty years ago, I was in church with my family, having just been appointed chief curator of my hometown University Art Museum. And during our meet and greet, one of the elders shook my hand and congratulated me, saying, now you can get rid of all the nudes. This story is not irrelevant to our subject today. It goes at the heart of how we as Christians understand our work in the world, including how we think about art and other forms of creative cultural practices. The elder certainly didn't give me the kind of vocational blessing I was looking for. Not exactly the kind of vocational blessing that Elisha gives Naaman in 2 Kings 5. But it gave me an idea of how my involvement in the art world was perceived by the church. I was there only as an infiltrator, a spy, who once inside was going to get rid of what needed to be gotten rid of. It was a war, and I was going undercover. I'm going to talk to you this morning about something that really offends us. And that is not Andres Serrano's Piss Christ, or Miley Cyrus's twerking on national television, or Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. What really offends us is God's grace. And that is what must underwrite our approach to art and culture. We are much more comfortable with God destroying Jericho and Sodom and Gomorrah than we are with him relenting and saving the wicked city of Nineveh simply because the king begged for mercy. And we exercise our discomfort with Nebuchadnezzar's conversion by either poking holes in his testimony or claiming that his conversion wasn't authentic. But this is usually how we operate in the public arena. We operate with a hermeneutic of suspicion, especially with those whom we don't feel deserve grace. My remarks focus on another Old Testament Gentile who experiences God's offending grace. It is the story of Naaman, the Syrian commander, a man of great courage and valor who was also a leper. In one of his raids in Israel, he's carried off a little Jewish girl as a servant. No doubt he's destroyed her community and probably killed her parents. She tells him that there's a man back home in Samaria who can heal him. So he brings an entourage to see this man named Elisha. But Elisha won't even come out to meet him, sending his servant instead out to tell our Syrian commander to wash in the Jordan River seven times and he will be healed. He refuses. The waters are murky and dirty. Come all this way to bathe there? But his servant prevails. As a side note, it's interesting how Naaman listens to the promises of God spoken through the insignificant mouths of a servant girl and a young man working for the prophet Elisha. There are two verses that receive scant attention, and that's where I'd like to sit for a bit today in order to make us really uncomfortable. So Naaman is healed, and he wants to reward Elisha, but Elisha refuses to accept any gifts. 
And so Naaman responds in verse 17 through 19. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And Elisha says, go in peace. These are the words we long to hear. Naaman asks Elisha for two things. Dirt and a pardon. Luther and the early reformers are helpful here. They distinguish between two kinds of righteousness and they distinguish between faith and love. A passive and an active righteousness. The passive righteousness is vertical. We stand before God and what is required of us is faith. Horizontally out towards the world as we face the world, it is the active righteousness and we love. We love our neighbor. It is, as Paul writes in Galatians 5 and Galatians 5, 6, it's faith working itself out in love. So again, what do we owe God? Faith. It is faith that fulfills the law. Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteousness, as Paul writes in Romans 4.3. So what exactly does Naaman ask for? The dirt. He's affirming his vertical relationship through faith. A reminder that he stands before the face of the one God, the Lord. And his worship is a response to what's already happened to him. Who he is as a person has changed. He is, as Paul and Luther would say, justified. But this has created a problem. For he is now a citizen of two kingdoms. And so he asks for a pardon. He asks for a blessing. He asks for grace. And this is where things get particularly uncomfortable. It's the horizontal messiness. His request is for help in what Hegel called the life and death struggle for mutual recognition. It's life. It's the battlefield and the war zone of daily living. Naaman has a job. Come Monday morning, Naaman has to serve the king. Those of us who live in the bubble of Christian organizations or the security of Christian communities, those of us who are professional Christians in one way or another tend to forget this. Like Rhino in the great Disney movie, Bolt. We're the tough-talking hamster who lives his life in a hamster ball. Oh, he can see the world, he can see culture, makes all sorts of declarations and has all kinds of opinions, but he has no skin in the game. So those of us in professional Christianity like to pontificate in an echo chamber about making a stand, taking broad swipes at the culture from the outside, bemoaning the degeneration of art and culture 
And we do so safely tucked away where our jobs are not only not at risk, they are fortified by our polemics. Naaman is experiencing the day after syndrome. I've come to faith in Christ, now what? I wake up on Monday morning and my life is still messy. I still have my addictions, my broken relationships, my stressful job. What is on Naaman's mind is that he takes his king to the pagan temple. Now, going to the pagan temple wasn't simply coming to hear a sermon. There were a lot of other activities and practices associated with the pagan temple. And Naaman has to help him. And Naaman is asking that Elisha bless it. And he does. Shouldn't Naaman consider quitting? Going into full-time ministry? At least take a public stand against the king? What kind of public witness is this? Shouldn't Elisha tell Naaman to take such a stand to become a martyr? Elisha doesn't seem to be indifferent to idolatry. He is sensitive to Naaman's vocation and his responsibilities. We think that Naaman is tainted by his boss's religious habits and, his former, and Naaman's former religious habits. We think that's a poor witness that Naaman is compromising his faith. But Elisha doesn't. Shouldn't that tell us something about how we consider what a faithful presence in the world should be? Especially when we're sequestered in bastions of Christian institutions and the security of Christian communities and neighborhoods. Paul himself says that he will become all things to all people for the case or for the cause of the gospel, which he writes in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23. All things to all people. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we allow this story to interpret us, to speak to us, we have to admit that the grace that Elisha shows Naaman is offensive. And it should force us to reconsider how we approach the world of culture, even the world of art. Karl Barth scholar George Hunsinger has this to say about grace. Quote, grace is not disruptive. Grace that is not disruptive is not grace. Grace, strictly speaking, does not mean continuity, but radical discontinuity. Not reform, but revolution. Not violence, but nonviolence. Not the perfecting of virtues, but the forgiveness of sins. Not improvement, but resurrection from the dead. End of quote. When it comes to art and culture, most of us in the church seem to care about all we in the church seem to care about is continuity, reform, violence, perfecting the virtues, and improvement. So Naaman went to Samaria, a leper and the citizen of one city, with allegiance and with one allegiance, the king. He will return healed and justified and a citizen of two, and thus an exile in his own homeland. And he must now learn to improvise his faith. 
much like Daniel in Babylon did at Nebuchadnezzar's court. His justification before the face of God, however, frees him rather than restricts him. He can now live out of and from faith, free to improvise. It frees him to be about his work in the world. Going to the temple with his king is now not an act of worship or superstition, religious allegiance, or the like. It is now a free act of loving his neighbor. His vocation has changed right out from under him. As the saying goes, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. This is why Luther could say Christianity is freedom. Freedom to respond to our neighbor's needs, which is what Luther understood by vocation. And this is exactly what we in the church withhold from the world, especially in matters of art and culture. The church often wants to manage art and culture at a distance through policies, ordinances, laws, use art and culture as tools and instruments for the church to control the public discourse. And for the most part, it is conducted entirely on the surface, through the media, through images, and with little or no sensitivity to the human beings who made them or the context in which they were made. And it is conducted entirely through law, not grace. It is legislated, not improvised. We live in a broken world, but freed through faith, we can be about our mission in the world, to love our neighbor, seek the welfare of the city through the gifts God has given and in the places God has put us. And those places are radically different for each and every one of us. My vocation is not yours. You are not called to spend your life looking at pictures. You are called to do many different things. I have neighbors that God has put me in contact with through my vocation, and you have your neighbors. I never did take down any of the nudes at my museum. And in fact, throughout my tenure, I found myself on the wrong side of several Christian groups over censorship issues. But on that Sunday morning, an idealistic 29-year-old got a wake-up call. Vocation and mission in culture is not going to be pretty. And it's going to be hard. It is its mercy, forgiveness, and grace, and the freedom of conscience that results from it that distinguish Christianity from all other religions. It is what gives it its power. It's what keeps Christianity from being just another civic religion. Only Christianity offers the sinful, suffering human being a promise. It is finished. I am the Lord your God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will give you rest. Go in peace.
The words we as human beings long to hear are spoken to us in Christ. Radical words of overwhelming grace that allows us to roll up our sleeves in a messy and broken world, walking through the thicket of relationships and compromise, precisely the battleground to which you'll return after this sermon and which has probably been nagging on you ever since you sat down. Go in peace. This is what we need to tell our artists, our art critics, our actors, our musicians, our poets, our novelists, our filmmakers, but not only our creatives, but our attorneys, men and women in business, the trades, the homemakers. This is what we have to tell them, or else we, the church, will not have any presence in these vocations at all. The world does not need Christian artists. It needs artists full of humanity, full of faith, full of freedom, making creative artifacts that bear witness to a world that is not a demand, not a judgment, but a gift, something to which we live in creative response. But it's not pretty, and it probably won't conform to how we think God should be active in the world. But so what? Are we so arrogant to think that we know how God is reconciling all things to himself? That we can actually see it? We walk by faith, not by sight. We stitch, as the great critic of the Enlightenment and friend of Immanuel Kant, J.G. Hamann writes, quote, on the other side of the carpet, end of quote. And so through faith we are free free to get into the nooks and crannies of cultural practices, become so familiar with them and intimately involved in their lives of other practitioners that it might look for all the world that we've abandoned our quote-unquote Christian distinctives. You are free to devote your entire life to look at art, free to do whatever God has called you to do, and to do so in peace. And now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.